This morning I want to talk to you about your soul, and I want to talk to you about the faith that God himself has implanted within your soul. There are various kinds of faith in our world, and there are a great many things that people attach their faith to, many, of course, of which is misguided faith, misplaced faith. Um, one of the great chapters of the Bible that teaches us about faith begins with, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. For by it men of old gained approval. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. That verse that I just read in verse 3 is one of the most interesting verses on faith that I know of in all the Bible because it teaches us that faith itself, saving faith, perceiving faith, insightful faith, faith that clings to God and is able to say in a, in a twisted, warped, confused world like we live in, I can say it is well with my soul. That is supernatural. And God's gift of faith, saving faith, is supernatural. It is a gift that comes by the operation of the Holy Spirit in the heart and life and soul of the believer. But what is fascinating about that verse is that it says, by faith we understand. And you've heard me say this before, that is basically the opposite of the scientific process. The scientific process is first we, we research, we research and we hypothesize and we, we work it out until finally we come to a conclusion and then we say, I understand. God's gift of faith can be operating in the life of one in our midst who's in their 80s. It can be operating in one of our youngsters that's six or seven years old. And it is a faith that is actually an organ of knowledge. Listen to me now. We're not used to thinking of faith this way. Faith is an organ of knowledge. What do you mean by that, Pastor? Well, God has given me eyes. They're getting a little weaker as I get older. But these eyes of mine are an organ of knowledge. They give me knowledge of the visible world around me. I see colors and shapes and sizes, and I see motion. These, these eyes are an organ of knowledge. My ears are an organ of knowledge. As I sat upstairs and listened to Josh and playing a new piece that he's working on last night, my ears enabled me to have a knowledge of what he was playing. Music, sounds, in the springtime, the birds as they build their nests and sit chirping and singing their songs every morning. My mouth, my tongue, my taste buds, that's an organ of knowledge. That's one of the shockers for some people 
the symptoms of COVID-19 for some have been the loss of the loss of taste and the loss of smell. Two of their organs of knowledge vanish for a time, and they can't taste. Now, depending on who it is that cooks in their household, that might be a blessing. I don't know. Um, but faith itself is an organ of knowledge. What you, Pastor, what are you getting at? Look at verse 3. By faith, we understand. See, you don't think of faith that way very often, do you? That faith itself, operating in your heart and mind and life, actually gives you insight and knowledge and understanding that you could otherwise never have. And this verse says, we understand that the world's creation was prepared by the word of God. Now, throughout this chapter, we have faith front and center. Verse 3 says, by faith. Verse 4 says, by faith. Verse 5, by faith. Verse 6, without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Verse 8, by faith. Verse 9, by faith. Verse 11, by faith. And all the way down through. Verse 17, by faith Abraham. Verse 20, by faith Isaac. Verse 21, by faith Jacob. Verse 22, by faith Joseph. By faith Moses. Verse 23, and on it goes down by faith Rahab. And he says, what more shall I say? For time will fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets who by faith. And so faith is the focal, central message of this entire chapter of Hebrews chapter 11. But tucked away in this chapter is a strange little section. It's a parenthesis where he sums up the operation of faith, not so much as faith in action, but faith in anticipation. Listen to me now. Faith works, and faith without works is dead. And Terry read that section for us from James. And so we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. It always is accompanied with action, with behavior, with works, so that it's demonstrated in the way we live our lives. But this particular parenthesis, it's a kind of a strange little section tucked away in the middle of Hebrews chapter 11, doesn't so much focus on faith as action, but faith as attitude and anticipation. And I believe this anticipation, boy, I, I want so much for the Spirit of God to help me this morning, to help all of us grasp this, this faith as anticipation is the secret of living your life on the short side. 
Now we know from the Bible that the gift of God is eternal life and that eternal life is knowing God and knowing Jesus Christ, his son. So we live our earthly lives on what we would call the short side, but always anticipating the long side. Beyond this life, beyond this fallen, decadent world. So the title this morning is The Secret Quality of Saving Faith. There is a secret quality about saving faith that the world does not understand. And it operates in the heart and life of every one of God's sons and daughters. And I want you to see this with me. And we won't take long, I don't think. Kathy says, Tony, never say that. Because I love these things. What do you want? You want a pastor that doesn't love these things? You want a pastor that doesn't care about these things? You want a pastor whose socks don't roll up and down when he gets into the Word and has the opportunity to share it? What do you want? So we go 10 minutes over. Who cares? We're living on the short side. But while we're on the short side, we like to make the most of the long side. And that's what the promises of God are all about. Not just for this life and the here and now. We live with this great, mysterious quality of anticipation. And it comes out for us in four different ways. And I want you to see this with me. We're looking at Hebrews chapter 11, and we're only looking at four verses verses 13 through 16. And I want to read the text first and have you follow along, and then we'll unpack it a little bit. What is the secret quality of saving faith? Not just action, but anticipation. Look at verse 13. All these people of faith, people who trusted in the Lord, all these, speaking of those Old Testament saints, died in faith without receiving the promises. But having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles or pilgrims on the earth, for those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Saving faith, and I'm going to unpack this in four ways. The secret of saving faith, saving faith that God puts within you, causes you, dear believer, to persevere unto death. To persevere unto death. 
the approach, and by the way, we've all had appointments. And we've all had appointments in this life that we have, for whatever reason, um, we bailed on those appointments. I've had a few appointments in my life that I did not show up for. How about you? Sure. But this is one appointment we're going to show up to. For Hebrews earlier in the book says, for it is appointed. That's short for appointment. It is appointed unto man once to die. And after this comes judgment. What is it that enables the believer to persevere unto death? Well, it's simple. It's so simple. We all know it, but we forget about it. There's probably nothing in all my life or in my experience on this earth that will be more intensely personal than my appointment with death. At that point, as much as my kids and grandkids love me, there's not going to be a lot they can do when that day comes. Even my wife, who has been at my side all these years, when my time comes, there's just a great limit on what she can do. I must pass through it myself. And my family can't come with me through it. And my goods and belongings, they certainly can't go through me, go with it, go through it with me. Excuse me. But there is one who has promised to go through it with me. We teach the children this psalm, don't we? The Lord is my shepherd, right? I shall not want. And we teach them this beautiful psalm of a sheep being cared for by a shepherd. But there is a minor note that comes in that psalm. And the psalmist writes, even though, right? Even though this appointment for me is coming, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. It is well with my soul. Why? For thou art what? with me. When it comes time for me to pass from this world to the next, my God has promised me, and more specifically, my shepherd has promised me, Tony, I will be with you right through that experience. Therefore, fear no evil. And though in those weak hours when you're about to expire, the enemy being so utterly malevolent and ruthless, he may throw every doubt he can at you. But Tony, remember this. You and I will face this together. You're not alone, for I am with you. And so saving faith, that God has put within each of us causes us to persevere even unto death. Secondly, 
Not only is that so, but this saving faith God has put within you causes you to peer into eternity. Look there at verse 13 again. For all these died in faith without receiving. And when it says without receiving the promises, what it means is they didn't see the promises fulfilled. They got the promises, they just weren't realized in their lifetime. But having seen them from afar and having welcomed them from a distance. That's what we do with the promises of God. And so when we come across promises that have become so dear to us, we're, no, we're not unlike these Old Testament believers. Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. For in my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. But I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That kind of a promise is not a promise that I can say I've received or I have found fulfilled in my life. It hasn't been fulfilled yet, just like these Old Testament believers. I look at the promise from a distance, don't I? I'm not there yet, but he's promised me. And his promise is only as good as his own character. Right? A man's promise is only as good as his own heart and character. And when God promises something, I believe we can count on it, don't you? And so we gaze, we look, we peer into eternity. And what is the supreme object of our faith? When we gaze into eternity, what do we see and what do we fix our eyes on? Now the verse just came to mind, didn't it? Hebrews 12.2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We peer. So this saving faith that's within you, this secret quality that has accompanied every single believer from Abel or Adam and Eve and Abel all the way to the last of the redeemed of the earth, every single one of us without exception have these two qualities that this faith within us causes us to persevere unto death. And by the way, I only know of two that this has not happened to. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. This experience of persevering unto death, Enoch never experienced this. And the second is Elijah the prophet, whom God swept in glory into his presence when his ministry was completed. 
Other than that, everyone, including the Lord Jesus Christ, has experienced death. So if we persevere unto death, we peer into eternity, and thirdly, we pass through this world. Look at verse 13 again. All these died in faith without receiving the promises. But having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, now watch carefully, and having confessed. When we think of confession, we generally think of if we say that we have no sin, we lie and deceive ourselves. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a kind of confession. The confession of sin. Lord, I'm a sinner. I need your forgiveness. Please, wash me clean. Clean my heart today so I can walk with you. That's one kind of confession, but that's not this. This is different. This is a confession to the whole world. Know this. I'm a stranger among you. My citizenship is elsewhere. My homeland is elsewhere. I am a pilgrim, and I'm just passing through a place I can never call my own. Having confessed that they were strangers and exiles, another translation is pilgrims on the earth. They're passing through. In this fleeting world that we live in of darkness, and confusion and unbelief. This world that is governed by the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the lusts of our flesh and of our mind, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. We were by nature children of wrath. But now, God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, we've been made alive together with Christ. And the moment that, book, that, that new birth experience happens, the moment the heart is changed and this supernatural secret of saving faith surges within you and you come alive to God, that moment you become a stranger in this world. You become a pilgrim instantly. One day you're without Christ and you don't know the Lord and you've not put your faith in him or trusted him or experienced the miracle of a changed heart and the next day you're a stranger, an exile, and a pilgrim and you don't even belong here. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Who could do that in your heart and life but God? Only God could do that. He makes us a new creation. If anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. And what, what characterizes the new creation you are? Well, you're an exile. You're a pilgrim. You're a sojourner. You're a traveler. You're in a foreign land immediately because your new nature is in perfect harmony with the nature of heaven. Oh, I know you have the flesh and you struggle with attitudes and you still wrestle and falter with sin. I know that. But that's a very shallow view of who you are. 
The miracle of new birth that makes you a new creation sets you on a course of passing through this world and out the other side to the glory that awaits us. So in this fleeting temporal world of darkness, what is it that causes us to pass through it as strangers and exiles? Well, we could come up with a thousand verses, couldn't we? Maybe the simplest is since the world is in darkness and the Bible declares that it's in darkness, then our greatest need is light. Light for the journey. Jesus said in John 8 verse 12, I am the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. If you have me, Jesus says, you have light. Because I am the light in this dark world. Well, saving faith, the faith that God has put within you as a believer in Christ, I trust, is true of you, causes you to persevere unto death, causes you to peer into eternity seeing the promises from afar. And it causes you to pass through this world. You don't hold on to this world white-knuckling everything you can get your hands on. And the more you grow in your walk with God, the less and less stuff is valued by you. It's, we talked about it on Tuesday night at our prayer meeting. It's a little bit of a, like a mother who weans her child. At first, that child doesn't take kindly to the weaning process. The child has found great comfort and nourishment on the breast of his mama. But there comes a time where it's no longer appropriate and or healthy for the child, and the child must be weaned. And he fights it at first. He wrestles with it. He struggles with it. He gets agitated. He's restless. He can't understand, and in many ways, it's the first thing that's been forced upon him by someone that he loves and trusts, kind of like we do. When we say, God, why would you take this from me? Why would my job go belly up on me? Why would the creditors come after me? Why would all this stuff be going on? Have you forsaken me? And he says, no, my child, you're just being weaned. I'm weaning you so that your trust is in me because you're meant to pass through this world, not stop in the middle of it and, and stockpile it. So we pass through. But fourthly and lastly, verses 14 through 16 teach us that this saving faith within us, within us causes us to pine for. We don't use that very word very often, but in keeping with our alliteration of peas this morning, does everybody know what pine for means? Long for, right? It's, it has to do with strong desire, a longing that just is there. Now, sometimes that longing within us is almost white hot. Other times, it's just smoldering. And there's a gamut between the two. But the desire never goes away. The desire and the longing can never go away because it is the secret of saving faith. It's an ingredient of the faith 
that God has put within you. So number four, it causes us to pine for your true home. Look at verse 14. For those who say such things, make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had an opportunity to return. Now, Abraham is the father of those of faith. And Abraham was called by God to come out of Ur of the Chaldeans in Mesopotamia. Come out and follow me. And Abraham went out not even knowing where he was going, just following God. And the idea here is that these patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they could have gone back had they had a mind to, but they didn't. And it's teaching us something here, that even Canaan, the promised land, was not seen by them as something permanent. It was a stopgap on the way to where they were really headed. And indeed, verse 15, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But, verse 16, as it is, they desire, they long for, they pine after a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Now, as we look at this last section, I want to have your attention for a moment. I know we're approaching the end of the message. But there are two two ideas that are tucked away in these verses that, to me, were stunning. They were staggering to me. And what do I mean by that? Well, the first one is this. If you look there at verse 16, it says, But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Now, You're not used to thinking like this, so I want you to think with me now. When you think about your relationship with God, the Father, your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, your Savior and Lord, and you think about God, the Holy Spirit, who lives within you, who communicates with you, teaches you, gives you illumination and understanding of the Word, who brings the very promises of God to you, When you think about that, you're mostly thinking about, I believe in the Lord and I am not ashamed. That's not what this is saying. Listen now. This says that God is not ashamed to be called their God. Now, pause a moment. Who are we talking about here? We're talking about the one from verse 1 of Genesis Genesis who created by merely speaking. 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is God who created this spiral galaxy that we live in the Milky Way. This is God, the astronomers tell us, who, who created hundreds of millions of other entire galactic systems. This is the great and glorious eternal God of heaven and earth, and he himself looks upon you. And you have to put your name in here, dear believer. He looks upon you, and he says, I am not ashamed to be called their God. Now, we have a theological problem here. Because shame, to be ashamed implies you've done something wrong. Does it not? Are you with me? If you're ashamed of something in your life, why are you? Because you've failed in some way. You've sinned in some way. You've, you've messed up in some way. And we know from the scriptures that God is not capable of doing anything wrong. God is matchless in his absolute pure and holy character from all eternity. There is nothing, there's no taint, there's no smudge, there's no spot, there's no wrinkle, there's nothing in his vast, eternal, glorious nature. There's nothing in him that can be ashamed. So when he says, with all of my eternal heart, I say to these that believe and trust in me, I am not ashamed to be called your God. That is staggering. <laughs> I can, can you fit that into your thinking? Can you get hold of that? In other words, if I personalize it, Father, are you saying that you're not ashamed to be Tony's God? How can that be? And he says, because you're in Christ, my son. I've already told you that you are in Christ, my son. And as one united to Christ, how could I ever be ashamed of my own son, Christ himself, Jesus? And because I've united you with him, I feel towards you the same way I feel towards my son. The second thing that's staggering and satisfying to me is this idea that God has prepared for us a city. You know, after the Industrial Revolution and the great age of steel manufacturing and car manufacturing and the great cities like Detroit. These cities were just the envy of the whole world. But as time went along, different ones went bankrupt or moved their manufacturing plants overseas. And now you walk through vast neighborhoods and complexes that were once thriving industrial areas and now they're broken down, abandoned, huge chunks of cities. 
and then sort of a sort of a, the riffraff have moved in there. Homeless people have moved in there. In fact, one author put it this way: Oh, what a city it's going to be when we see and stand in the city of God, the the city that He has prepared for us. And the author says this: What a city it is! There's no pollution. No graffiti, no trash, no peeling paint or rotting garages, no dead grass or broken bottles, no harsh street talk, no in-your-face confrontations, no domestic uh, strife or violence, no dangers in the night, no arson or lying or stealing or killing, no vandalism and no ugliness, which we saw a great deal of over the summer, didn't we? The city of God will be perfect because God will be in it. He will walk in it and talk in it and manifest himself in every part of it. All that is good and beautiful and holy and peaceful and true and happy will be there because God will be there. Perfect justice will be there. The recompense of a a thousandfold for every pain suffered in obedience to Christ. And it will never deteriorate. In fact, it will shine brighter and brighter as eternity stretches out into unending ages of increasing joy. (laughs) That's the city of God. That's our home. And that's why one of the secrets of saving faith that burns like a flame within us Not only does it persevere unto death, peer into eternity, pass through this world, but it pines for our true home. When you desire this city above everything else on earth, then you honor God, who according to verse 10 is the architect and builder of the city. And when God is honored, he is pleased and not ashamed to be called your God. The great battle for faith is not at the level of behavior. It's at the level of desire. What is your desire? What do you pine for? What do you long for? I got a kick out of it years ago. You know, Kathy and I hadn't been here very long. And uh, it was just within the first few months of moving to Kettle Falls 30 years ago. And back then, we had red carpeting and a big stage and a baptismal tank over here. And, and we had wooden pews. And they were somewhat in disrepair, not terribly, but they had received so many coats of varnish over the years that because we had no air conditioning in here, when people would gather on a Sunday morning and lean back when it was hot on an August day, lean back against the back of those pews, sometimes they would get up and I would see them turn around to talk to people and I could see the stripes of the old varnish come right off on their coats. We had to do something about that. And so you're the benefactors of the hard work of, and, and sacrificial giving of many who made it possible. But one day, sitting about where John Worth is sitting right now, there was a little lady sitting there. She was in her 80s. Her name was Irene Johnson. 
Some of you remember Irene. First time I met Irene, I was told where she lived, and I'd been here, I was new, so I was getting to know the people that were in this church, and I was told where to find her, so I went to her home, and I went to Irene's, and, and I went, and I knocked on the door, and no answer, but I could see that there were forms. Now, I, but mind you, I was visiting a woman in her 80s. There were forms, and pegs driven in the ground, and somebody was laying a brand new... Uh, a brand new sidewalk around the house. So I went around the corner and looked, and I came on the backside of Irene, who was bent over with a trowel, smoothing concrete that she had mixed in her wheelbarrow. And I was sure that, that couldn't be Irene, because she's supposed to be in her 80s. But sure enough, it was Irene. And she was so happy to see me, and she got up and wiped the concrete off the side of her cheek and insisted I come in and have a cold drink. And we started visiting and talking, and she was just Norwegian and tough. And, uh, but she loved the Lord. Anyway, on this particular Sunday morning, we were worshiping the Lord and singing, and all of a sudden, Irene just fell over, about where John is. She just fell over in the pew. And I knew for a long time, or I'd known for you know months, that Irene had a bad heart. She told me about it. Anyway, my wife Kathy and several, she said, "Call 911." And so we all called 911, and the church service kind of stopped, and we began to pray. And pretty soon, the EMTs arrived and came rushing in. And uh, by then, Irene was just kind of groggy and starting to revive. And, and the EMTs were all around her, and we're all around her praying. And they woke her back up and, and revived her. And she was mad as a hornet. <laughs> she said, what are you people doing calling 911? Of all the places that I, that I would have liked to have left this world and gone home to the city of God, right here, in the place I love, worshiping the Lord, singing his praises. I, this was perfect. Why did you bring me back? And she was hot. She truly was hot and upset at us because we didn't let her depart. Well, I love that story. That's what it means to pine for your true home. All of these are evidences, aspects, ingredients of saving faith. And you notice none of them have to do with the behavior of faith. They're not about faith in action. They're about faith in attitude and anticipation. Let me ask you this morning as we sing one more song. Do you live? Now, I know you got to get up tomorrow and go to work and do the things you got to do. But is there always a flame burning within you? and a longing for your true home. Because you're a pilgrim, you're a sojourner. This can never be your, your permanent resting place. It just can't be, because you're out of sync with this world. Is that true of you? If you know Christ, it is. If you know the Savior, and I hope you do, I hope you do. Well, I was in, just compelled to get into this area of study because uh, we had to say goodbye to our dear sister, Laurie. But it's just a temporary goodbye. 
And I can't count all the ones that we've buried down through the years. And you've heard me say this before, and I don't care how morbid you think it is, because I want to see with, through the eyes of God. And so my question is always simply this. Well, family, who gets to go home next? Does that seem morbid to you? It shouldn't. <laughs> I like it. Very good, Lance. <laughs> no, you know, I do not want I do I don't want my heart to beat one beat more than God has planned for me. I have no interest in speeding things up because I have loved ones that need me. And that's the beauty of it. It's not in our control. We trust in him. We walk with him. We peer into eternity and pine for the city of God. What a glory it's going to be. I wonder who gets to go home next. Don't know. Now, don't be foolish. Don't think, look around and say, oh, where's the old timers? That's, that's not always how it works, guys. If anything we've learned in our church, that's not how it works. God himself makes the choice. God himself has said, uh, in, in Psalm 139 that, Lord, all of my days were written in your book before there had yet even been one of them. My days are in your hands. But while I'm here on the short side, help me live for with the values, the purposes, the longings, the things that matter to the heart of God. Let me live for the long side. Right? Yeah.